Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 35 through the end of that chapter, verse 44. 35 through 44 of Mark, chapter 12, God's holy and inspired word given to you. Give your attention to the reading of it. Mark 12, beginning in verse 35. God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in this he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and light greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all are, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So you gave it your all. You put forth your best efforts. You painted the bedroom perfectly. It was the finest exam you ever wrote. The meal was executed flawlessly. You're so proud of your work, you can't wait to show off your final product. And so you bring your husband into the bedroom to impress him, and he says, nice, but you painted the wrong room. The professor hands you an F. You answered the wrong question. The guest remarks, it looks nice, but it has peanuts, and I'm deathly allergic. Like a beautiful eight-hour sandcastle wiped out by a single wave, all your good effort is trashed. Your quality is futile, your best for naught. Indeed, few things match this level of frustration and waste. It's kind of like having the wrong currency. You have a $1,000, but it's worthless as they only accept euros. And such disasters are especially haunting when they enter the church, when they squander religious effort. Indeed, you thought you were acting for God, but you actually were not. Well, our Lord warns us against such misguided zeal, and he does so by focusing us on the wonders of his Messiahship. So it has been a long day of teaching in the temple for our Lord, for ever since he entered the holy precincts in the morning back in 1127, challengers haven't given our Lord a moment to rest. It's been one provo- uh, provocative question after another, verbal missiles each one. Though our Lord's masterful, masterful answers and deflections 
have parried them all. And so uh, he so put them into their place that he silenced all his rivals. No one dared to throw any more questions at our Lord. And so with his adversaries sulking on the bench, our Lord decides to play a little offense. So far, he's been mostly on the defensive, but with his haters cowering, Jesus will throw for a touchdown. And he does so by taking up a theological mystery. He serves up a doctrinal riddle. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, he and the scribes have been mostly at odds. Indeed, as a group, the scribes are out for his blood. But our Lord cites one of their teachings favorably. He agrees with them in identifying the Christ or the Messiah with the son of David, that these two lofty titles refer to the same figure. However, even though we might not be able to notice it, there is something logically problematic with this. The Christ is the son of David is contradictory on the surface. It's like saying a husband is a bachelor, broccoli is a fruit, or that TikTok is good. And so, indeed, so the Christ is the son of David seems like a logical contradiction. It's what we call a theological paradox. But how is it paradoxical? Well, the Christ is a lofty figure in the Old Testament who would be superior over all the Old Testament saints, even David himself. On a scale of authority, Christ ranks above David. A son, though, is inherently inferior to a father with respect to authority. In the ancient world, children were always inferiors of their parents. And current generations were inferior to their ancestors, especially famous ones. We are children of Abraham, but consider how arrogant it would be to declare, I'm greater than Father Abraham. This just is not to be done. The paradox, then, is how can Christ be David's superior and his inferior? This doesn't compute with common sense logic. Instinct marks it wrong. Moreover, by posing this theological riddle, Jesus is picking up the fact that just a few days previously, he was heralded as the son of David. Bartimaeus cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus gave the blind man his sight. In the triumphal entry, the crowd serenaded him as the Davidic son coming in the kingdom of Father David. The whole town is abuzz with Jesus as the son of David. And so he takes up the title and probes how he can be the Christ too. If I am the son of David, can I also be the Christ? As the scribes say. Thus, for the first time in Mark, Jesus publicly identifies himself as the Messiah, as the son of David. In this way, Jesus also discloses the nature of his authority, which was the initial challenge of the priest that very morning. And to start off, our Lord confirms the correctness of the paradox by citing Psalm 110. Speaking in the Holy Spirit, David himself wrote in paradoxes. 
The Lord said to my Lord. Now, as you may remember, the clarity of this line is a bit lost in translation. Literally, it reads, an oracle of Yahweh to my Lord, meaning my master or my liege. Yahweh spoke to David's Lord. And so the divine name Yahweh makes clear that these are two figures. There is Yahweh, and there's this second heavenly figure, David's Lord, which Jesus identifies as the Christ. Therefore, in a heavenly oracle, David hears Yahweh speak to the Christ, whom David calls my Lord, the superior, his master, his savior. Moreover, Jesus goes on to cite the next two lines of Psalm 110 about sitting at the right hand and enemies subdued under his feet. This, though, is a prophecy, a promise. That is, in David's time, he heard Yahweh say to the the Christ, but these words are a future promise. When the Christ comes, God will do these for the Messiah. Now, of course, we know when these are fulfilled, to sit at the right hand of God in heaven is an act of enthronement and glorification. This our Lord fulfilled in his resurrection and ascension. He burst forth from the grave, victor over death, vindicated as the righteous one, and he floated up to the right hand with all authority. Jesus didn't just ground him being the Christ in Psalm 110, but note he also foreshadows his soon fulfillment of this glorious psalm. Yet with the psalm quoted, Jesus makes two concluding points, one a statement and one a question. First, David himself calls him Lord. The historical man, inspired by the Spirit, calls Christ his Lord. What then does this say about the Christ? Well, it says that the Christ is above David. David is a man of the soil, a herder of fuzzy sheep. But the Christ is a figure from above. He belongs to heaven, a member of the heavenly council. An oracle takes place in heaven. David is listening to Yahweh address Christ in heaven. Likewise, to be above David means that Christ is before David. Christ long was before David began. Now, the full divinity of Christ is not here made obvious, but it is loudly hinted at. Yes, Jesus makes clear that the Christ is above and before David, and so the Christ is David's Lord. And if this, and if Jesus is the Christ, then this is all true of him. Though with such a lofty lordship of Christ, how can he also be David's son? How can he, who is above and before, also be after and below David? And it is interesting that Jesus doesn't answer this question. He just lets it hang like the smell of fresh-baked cookies that you cannot eat. Indeed, Mark makes us sneak an answer for ourselves. How can the Christ be Lord and the Son? Well, a son can mean a descendant in the same family line and also mean heir 
one to inherit the father's estate, crown, and kingdom, though not necessarily related. But note that the touch points for Lord were timing and superiority. A son of David naturally comes after David and has some element of being less than David. So the Christ as the son of David will come later than David, and he will be lower than David, at least for a time. This is why Jesus cited, sit at my right hand. If the Christ is to be enthroned, there must be a time when he is not. And with this, Jesus sets forth the answer to the paradox. What is the solution to this theological riddle? Well, it isn't a what, but who. Jesus is the living person, is the answer. He is above and before David. But he was born of the line of David to be after him and to become lower than him. This is why Jesus leaves the question unanswered. For it can only be answered by faith in Jesus, who is the Christ and the Son of David. The hanging question is a call to believe. To believe in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of David. Nevertheless, having established his authority as the Christ Lord of David, Jesus moves on to exert some of his authority. The priests, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees have been judging him, and so he will do a bit of judging. And he puts the scribes in his crosshairs. Beware of the scribes. Guard yourselves against the wicked ways of the scribes. Jesus sets forth the scribes as a negative example to be avoided. Do not be like them. So what are their ways? Well, Jesus pinpoints their desires. They like, they want to walk around in long robes, which at that time were status symbols of wealth and high class. The robe was the outfit of prestige and success that said, I am better than you. So also the scribes loved greetings in the marketplace, that is, public acclaim and respect to be praised as meritorious. They wanted to be flattered with exaggerations for everyone to hear. They also desired the seats of honor in the synagogue, which were the front rows, chairs of authority and power. From these seats, they could tell you what to do, They could impose their will on you as if it was God's will. And, of course, they had to have the first seat at the fancy feast. This was the VIP couch with bottle service and caviar. The pricey delicacies and the luxurious wine was served to them while the plebes gawked in the hallway. And all all these things mixed together form what sort of These four desires create what sort of drink? Well, it's a cocktail named religious gluttony. Indeed, these are occupied with externalities. It is a piety that primps in the mirror, gets a spray-on tan, and is obsessed with clothes. Such desires are addicted to the praise of men, to social capital, and to to feel to feel that you are better than others. This is vain glory 
that needs constant petting and attention. If the conversation is not about them, they make it so. If they're not the main character on center stage, they will elbow and bribe to get there. And it is a pie that lusts for religious influence and relevancy. They have to be the teacher, the saint, the expert, in order to tell you what to do to be the model that you lust to be like. This is religion for oneself, to feed your pride, to fill your belly, to stroke your ego. They work at it. They put in their best efforts. But their religion is not for God. It isn't for the other person, but it is for themselves. And in order to secure these religious luxuries, the scribes will devour the homes of widows. Now, we're not exactly sure how the scribes did this in all details, though two of their methods are likely. One, the scribes were known for increasing beyond Scripture the demand for tithes and offerings. In God's name, they would impose higher demands for giving, which plumped up their own paycheck. Two, back in the day when a husband died, the estate had to go through something like our probate, which the widow needed an attorney or scribe for. And the scribal fees to handle this could bankrupt the estate. Either way, the force of this is more likely proverbial. Widows were vulnerable, and to eat up an estate is to cheat, swindle, and steal. It's kind of like stealing candy from a baby. By religious taxes and fraud, the scribes would rob the vulnerable to fund their religious gluttony. Though like any good businessman, the scribes had more than one stream of income. They would fleece the widows for respect, but they would also make long prayers. By prolonged and eloquent public prayers, by bragging of two-hour prayer marathons at 4 a.m., the scribes would purchase the homage and adoration of the people. Wow, they're such magnificent prayers. They fed their own vainglory. They won public accolades and applause by their seemingly endless prayers. Now, prayer is supposed to be talking to God, but their pretend God talk was theater for a standing ovation. And this should be a caution for us, particularly as the Reformed tradition tends to celebrate those who pray long. For some reason, in contrast to this clear warning from Jesus, we make heroes out of those who have a reputation for extending or extended praying. We strive to win people's praise by telling them how long we pray. But this should not be. If you pray long, fine and good, but don't tell anyone about it. And if you feel good about your praying long, you should check the pride of your heart. Prayer is not about religious promotion or self-merit. And if it is used as such, it is a vice and not a virtue. For as Jesus says, for such sins, there is greater condemnation. 
And this greater judgment comes because with more knowledge comes more culpability. Furthermore, these sins attack the precious things of our faith, like prayer, giving, etc. Such practices and disciplines of our religion are meant to be pure expressions of devotion to God. They participate in the holy things of the Lord. But to pervert them into a gluttonous feeding of pride or self-social standing, wealth and bodily luxuries, is to defile and pollute the Lord's holy and intimate ways of the covenant. It's to turn the marriage bed into pornography. It is vile, and so the Lord will judge such sins more severely. To employ religion for self-promotion, social capital, and economic wealth ignites God's wrath to burn hotter. Additionally, Jesus gives us an example of another evil outcome of this type of piety of the scribes. As our Lord is teaching, he's sitting across from the treasury box. Now, this is the offering box where the people lined up to deposit their monetary tithes. And on this day, there's quite the queue. A large crowd is lined up with cash in hand. Many of them are rich and are giving richly. With their hundreds and fifties, they wave their offering in the air. The oohs and ahs come from the onlookers. How much did he give? She must have given at least 10000 Religious gluttony in the form of giving money was the sold-out show on Broadway. And yet somehow, amid all these big spenders, a bent-over poor widow slips in the line and drops in the plate two small copper coins. Now, not all widows were poor. Some were quite wealthy. But this widow is penny-poor. Now, technically, her two coins are called lepta, which were the smallest Greek coins minted. And together, they equaled one quadrans, which was the smallest Roman coin minted. And we have one record where eight lepta bought you a single dead sparrow. And so here with two lepta, you could get a quarter of a sparrow. Yum, a sparrow's head for breakfast. This is destitute. But this poor lady put both of her last two lepta in the offering plate. Very few people probably noticed this, but our Lord did. And so he calls his disciples and he makes a point. Truly I say to you, this widow gave more than all the wealthy people. Now on one level, Jesus' point focuses on percentages. The well-off may have given 10,000, but this was a mere 12% of their millions. But the widow and her penny was 100% of her net worth. They gave a piece, she gave the whole pie. Yet the key aspect to this remark is tone. How does Jesus say this? Now, most often we hear Jesus' tone as praiseworthy that he's complimenting the widow and telling us to be like her. This is regularly used as the prime proof text for church fund raising campaigns or to order the saints to give more money. 
However, this is most likely the wrong tone. For Jesus points to this widow after mentioning the devouring of the widow's estate. Thus, our Lord's tone is one of sadness and lament. He doesn't point to the widow as a positive example, but as the negative fruits of scribal greed. She is the waste product of their religious gluttony. It isn't God who calls her to give her last penny, but it's the heavy yoke of the scribes. And her two last lepta, they go to feed the temple complex of greed, pride, and self-promotion for the leaders. Indeed, Jesus literally says in verse 44, she gave all she had her whole life. The implication is she deposited her last two coins and then just went out to die. Religious gluttony not only steals from God, but it quite literally devours the vulnerable saints. Our Lord mourns at what is happening to this dying widow. And in doing so, he uses her as a foreshadowing of what will soon happen to him. Jesus entered the temple to condemn it. He tossed over the money tables and stopped worship and called it a den of robbers. And so the leaders came at him, guns blazing to destroy him. By their greed, they consumed this widow, and now they will do the same to our Lord Jesus. And in this way, Jesus answers how he will be the son of David. To be a son is to be lesser than, to be in a lower position. And so Jesus lowers himself way below David by dying like a penniless widow. Jesus will literally be devoured by the pride of the priest, the vainglory of the scribes, and the religious merit of the temple complex. They will slice Jesus to make themselves appear more righteous. Our Lord did cite the promise of Psalm 110 about sitting at the right hand fulfilled in his resurrection. But before he can be enthroned in the resurrection, Jesus must be abased in his death on the cross. As the Son, he must be humbled unto death so that in the resurrection, Jesus will be declared Christ and Lord. And where the widow was guilt-tripped into giving her whole life, Jesus offers his whole life willingly, freely, out of love for you. He laid down his life as a pleasing sacrifice to the Father to appease his wrath for your sin and to pay the debt of our transgression. This is the amazing gospel in the paradox of Jesus' Messiahship. That even though Christ was before and above David, fully God from all eternity, he came after David and humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on the cross for your salvation, to redeem you from all your gross sins of pride, greed, and religiosity. Jesus saved you from yourself, 
from your sin and death. And now that Jesus is at the right hand with a name above all names, Christ Jesus, he, what is he doing? He is constantly praying for you. He's praying to forgive you, to protect you, to keep you humble and in the faith. By the love and prayers of Jesus, it's the grace of God that sanctifies you and enables you to love him sincerely from the heart. Indeed, dear saints, you do not have to pray long because Jesus is constantly praying for you. Sure, let us pray, but our prayer is not a religious work. Rather, prayer is us humbling ourselves to rest in the person and work of Christ. It is our weakness depending on his strength. It is our unworthiness falling on his merit. And prayer is our sweet communion with him freely done. Also through prayer is this is how we live by Christ's grace alone for his glory alone so that he might be glorified in us now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.